Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, October the 14th, 2022. It is currently 2.50 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where if I'm being honest with you right now, like if I'm being just fully transparent, fully honest, I am beyond discouraged, beyond depressed, beyond frustrated, beyond aggravated. I, I, I have already contemplated just quitting podcasting, quitting the ministry, quitting Christianity, and just leaving. You, you think that that's hyperbole, but that's how bothered. That's how frustrated I became from what we did earlier today. The live broadcast we did earlier today was a review of a sermon preached at a youth conference in the summer of 2022 in Indiana. And by the time we finished that review, it was two parts. We did one part yesterday and the other part today. I, I just, I just questioned everything that I've ever done in ministry. I'm like, here's someone preaching at a youth conference, has a large ministry. You know, they bring in money. He, ha- he preaches in front of hundreds and hundreds of people. And, and if that's the way you're supposed to do ministry, I, I, then I, I don't fit in. I don't fit in. I don't fit in. I mean, there's so much that happens with it. I mean, I've always felt like an outsider to the Christian world. I'm just going to be honest. I've always felt like an outsider. I don't fit in because I don't, I don't follow the template. I don't say, I don't talk the way you're supposed to talk. I don't, I don't think you're supposed, I don't think you have to do church the way every other church does church. I think that there can be, there should be a place within Christianity for someone who does something a little bit different. There should be some place for that. Yes, doctrinally, theologically, you have to be sound and, 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 and accordance with historical biblical Christianity. But why, why, why? It's almost like this is what you're supposed to do to be successful in ministry. First, you figure out your team. First thing you got to do, figure out your team. Are you in the independent fundamental Baptist world? Are you in the seeker sensitive kind of evangelical world? Are you in the hardcore reformed world? Find your team. Once you find your team, you follow their template. You talk like them. You do church like them. You act like them. You get upset by the things that upset them. You support what they support. You speak against what they speak against. Then maybe, 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 maybe you can have a successful ministry. But if you're like, nope, not going to follow the trends, the fads, not going to follow the template. Not you know, And I say this all the time. You know what team I'm on? I'm on none of the teams. I don't care about your teams. I don't care to be in your team or your camp and to speak your language. I want to be on the team that cares about, I don't know, scripture, doctrine, theology, with or with, with or without offense to the team. I want to figure out what the scriptures say, and I don't care if it goes even against myself. I don't care. But by 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 the end of this, you know, by the end of this morning reviewing this sermon, I literally just said, you know what? It doesn't matter. Who cares? It just give up. Just forget it. Just just throw it all away. It's not worth it. it just go do something else. Right? Create a podcast dedicated. I don't know music movies, anything, right? Underwater basket weaving. You probably can be successful in those things, but trying to do theology in a way where you're opposed to basically all the teams, all the cliques, you're, you're, you're going to be the odd man out. And I, and I feel like that I'm the odd man out. And I guess a great example of being the odd man out is doing a podcast series called Bible study exercise, where you actually try to get people to study the Bible and you try to go through Bible study methods and, 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 and the way we're digging into the text. I know that that's not the way everyone else does it. And once again, I'm the odd man out. So there, I guess in some ways I'm having a pity party. I just want to quit. I just want to give up. What's even the point? What, what's, it doesn't matter. It just, it doesn't matter because I won't go along with everyone. But I still hold out hope. That there's got to be place somewhere. There's got to be people somewhere. I don't know where they are who will be like, man, I like the different. I like that you offer kind of an alternative to quote unquote Christianity 
the normal Christianity, the Christianity in general, that you offer something unique, something different. Some, and I want to support that. And I, and I want to participate. I'm hoping there's people there. Obviously, they don't live in Texas. Because if they did, then I wouldn't have a church of such, of such small number. But it just, it just gets frustrating because, because, I mean, we listened to a sermon, a man who just, he was, he was gossiping and slandering and, and, and bearing false witness and lying and just, and all kinds of crazy accusations. It was just insane, but yet nobody cares. But you know what? You can feel sorry for yourself, which I am, or, you can say, you know what? Let's open up a Bible. Let's get back to the scriptures. Let's dig in and let's just keep doing what you've been doing. And hopefully that somewhere, someday, somewhere, somehow, someone, people will find it and be appreciative of it, support it. And you can continue on trying to offer something different. So we're going to do that. Sound good? I hope so. I just, I just like to be, I just like to be open and honest. In other words, my, my feelings right now, my, my emotions right now, it would be don't, don't open a Bible, don't study the Bible. That would be my emotions. And one thing I've tried to learn in my Christian life is when my emotions tell me don't, don't study right now, don't study your Bible. That's usually the time I need to dig in. So I wanted to do podcasts on other things, but I felt like this is, this is the appropriate thing to do. Amos chapter six. We've been working on the book of Amos. This is like part. What I don't even know anymore. I've lost I've lost track on how many episodes we've done. We have currently done twenty three. So this is part twenty four in our study to the book of Amos. Twenty four. That's twenty three plus hours studying the book of Amos. I hope someone has benefited from it. Now we can take. Now we're going to begin hour twenty four, and we're going to do our very best to get something from it. But before we get started, and I almost did this. But I know we have to move on. We have to move on because if you're following the curriculum, we're, we're supposed to be done with Amos. So we really have to wrap Amos up relatively quick. We really need to. So if you're working on Amos using the Bible study method that I gave everyone, the comprehensive book Bible study method, please, I won't say pressure yourself, but you definitely want to st- kind of speed that up a little bit so we can bring that to a conclusion. And I'll try to speed up my time here going through the book. But I would challenge you to do this. I don't know if you have time this weekend, but at least open the curriculum for those using the curriculum and go to the uh, study for uh, that's entitled Seek God. It's on Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 15, and we just finished our study of Amos chapter 5. I wanted to go through the study guide with you, go through the curriculum with you on chapter 5, but that will just delay us. I may circle back and use the curriculum maybe for a devotional study. I don't know. We'll find some way, but please open up and at least read the curriculum on Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 15. I think there's a lot of good background information a lot of contextual information about, uh, about history and the dividing of the of the kingdom of Israel, north and south. And I think there's some information there that may be beneficial or it just may be a good refresher. So if you have the curriculum, if you're listening, you're like, what curriculum? Just email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Say, I want the curriculum. I send you a link. It's free to you. It costs us money. It's free to you. And of course, if you ever want to support us financially, you can uh, hit the Give tab, theologycentral.net. There's a Give or Donate tab. Obviously, Sermons 2.0, look up Theology Central. There's a Give or Donate tab there. And, of course, the Church One app um, if you ever want to help support while well, having curriculum for people all over the world who want access to it. But please look at the curriculum and use that. Now, we are currently utilizing the teaching of Dr. J. Vernon McGee because his ministry gave us permission to use it. So the following is brought to you by Through the Bible Ministries, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We are grateful and appreciative of it. Now, we're using it not in like my typical review. I, I guess we're kind of doing it like a review way, but the, really the goal is, I mean, typically I could just play it. I don't, I, don't, I don't have to say anything. But what we're doing, and we may do that with a couple. I know I don't think we're going to do that. What I'm trying to do is let you hear his perspective and then my perspective. So what you're getting is not only are you working through the book of Amos using the Bible study method I gave you, and all of the things I've done on the book of Amos from, from the pulpit at my church, that's been a part of the series. What you're also hearing is being able to hear Dr. J. Vernon McGee and my perspective at the same time, which offers more perspective 
more interpretation, and more work on the book and each chapter, so hopefully you're growing in your understanding of it. And also, I'm giving you the opportunity after each episode to let me know what questions you have, because I'm still willing to turn on this microphone and do episode after episode, episode just answering questions you have in regards to the book of Amos. So feel free to do that as well. But I'm hoping I'm answering a good portion of the questions. So deep breath, set aside all my frustrations, irritations, and distractions. And let's go to Amos chapter 6. Amos, a prophet in the southern kingdom, sent to the northern kingdom to bring God's word of judgment and condemnation upon Israel for their many sins. Let's see what happens in chapter 6. Here we go. The late Dr. J. Vernon McGee will utilize his teaching. And of course, I'll be interrupting and adding additional comment, commentary, analysis, critique, thoughts. And sometimes I offer special assignments. I gave a special assignment yesterday on the book of Amos. I haven't heard anyone mention it, right, about spiritual adultery. So I, I can't wait to see what people have found on that very important subject. But here we now, we come to the sixth chapter, and when we come to this chapter, this is the last chapter in this present series that we had at the very beginning, the judgments on Judah and on Israel. And beginning with chapter 7, it will be visions of the future, and that will take us through the book of Amos. We'll move a little faster through that section. But now we've come today here to chapter 6, and it's the last in this series of three chapters. In chapter 4, it was God punished Israel in the past for iniquity. And chapter 5, God will punish Israel in the future for iniquity. And now in chapter 6, Israel admonished in the present, that is, in Amos's day, to depart from iniquity. Now, he begins by giving one of his woes. He is not the prophet that majors in the woes. You find them in several of the other prophets that we've studied, and you find them in the book of Revelation. Now, here is a woe. Now, it would be interesting, and if we had more time, I would give you a special assignment. But if anybody would like to do it, go through the entire Bible and find all the woes. Woe unto you. Woe. Like, like here in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Woe. Find all the woes in Scripture. Now, you could probably do a Google search, but that would be no fun. Find them for yourself and read them for yourself. If anyone compiles a list of all of the woes in Scripture, uh, please send it to me, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com. I'd love to see what you find. You're, you compile your list of all the woes in Scripture. It's something we could do kind of a an impromptu study like that. We could do a, a special Bible study exercise uh, on all the woes in Scripture, just starting, well, where's the first one found? What do you think? Where do you think the first woe is found in Scripture? What do you think? Think there's one in Genesis? Think there's one in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth? Okay, I could go through, um, I could I could sit here and recite all the books of the Bible, but you get the idea. Where was the first one? Is there any significance to the first one? What, 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 what? I mean, I think, I just think it would be, it would be, I think it would be fun. So, you know, if you have nothing to do on a Friday evening, gather the family together, pop some popcorn and say, tonight, we're going to look at all the woes in Scripture. And I'm sure everyone would be like, Wow, what a great Friday night. I can't, this, this is, I can't wait for this. Okay, well, all right. So if, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if anybody would, would love doing that. But if you do, I would, I would love to, I, I think it would be fun. I think it would be fun to see. I mean, it may be, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it could be spiritually edifying, but there you go. I, I wonder if anyone's ever written a book, The Woes of Scripture. I wonder. I wonder if it'd be an interesting book or a study guide or a podcast series, The Woes of Scripture. What do you think? Would you be interested in that? Do you think it would be interesting? You can let me know. You can let me know. All right, let's continue. W-O-E, and it also means W-H-O-A, means to stop, look, and listen, because this is something that is important. It's like the 
word therefore. He used that in the last verse of the last chapter. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus. That therefore is always an important word, as we've said. Someone wrote me, said that their preacher says that when you come to a therefore, you should see why it's therefore. And that is a very good explanation of it. And the word woe is one that ought to draw our attention. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, who are chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Now, actually, the northern kingdom, in grave danger, engaged in sin, was taking it easy. And it was something that they were saying, I think, to each other, common greeting at departure years ago was, well, take it easy. Well, today it is, have a good day. I take it that it means practically the same thing, and that's what they were doing. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. And they were sitting in the lap of luxury in a day of affluence. And we've been doing that, actually, since the Depression and World War II. As a nation, we have been in the same. Please note, remember, my my major frustration with Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching on Amos is he constantly, and I know preachers love to do this, you take something from the book and immediately apply it to the world, apply it to the culture. No, these issues, look, remember, this is a, a, a prophecy given to the people of God who's in a covenant relationship with God. Apply it to Christians. Apply it to the church. Don't apply it to the world. Apply it to God's people. Apply these sins, these condemnations of the sins of Israel. Make this a a challenge for Christians and for the church to look at these sins in the midst of us and the house of the Lord and and your life and my life. So I I I just think it's a wrong handling of Scripture to take this. Hey, this is about the nation of Israel. It's about our nation. No, 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 no. They're completely different concepts. Israel, that's God's people. They're under a, they're in a covenant with God. Apply it to the church. Apply it to believers, not to the lost culture. But, all right, I continue. Conditions, sitting in the lap of luxury and in a day of affluence. Now, he goes on here to say, you trust in the mountain of Samaria. That's where they kept the atom bombs. They felt that Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Ahab and Jezebel lived there, and that was where the palaces of ivory were. And it was a place that could be defended, wall around it. It sets lonely on a hill, and this had become a very important city, so much so that when the Assyrians destroyed it, Herod later on rebuilt it. Herod was quite a builder. You'll find that he built all over Palestine. He built Caesarea, built it right from ground up. But in Samaria, he rebuilt it because it was such a marvelous location. Now, all of this luxury and the fact that they had the atom bomb, they felt secure. They felt that they were well protected. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, who are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. And they were recognized in that day among the nations. They belonged to the United Nations, and the northern kingdom had a great deal to say. Now he says to them in verse 2, he says, Pass under Kalna. Now, Kalna is actually one of the cities that was in the intersection of the Tigris River and the upper Zab River. And Nineveh was there. Kalna was there. It constituted a great center. And he says, Pass under Kalna and see. And from there go to Hamath the Great. Well, Hamath is the chief city in Syria. You're coming south now. Then go down to Gath. Now, Gath was in the south. It was the leading city of the Philistines. 
Are they better than these kingdoms? Are their border greater than your border? In other words, go look at these nations. Why do you think that you are superior to these nations? You're not superior. You're engaged in the same sins they are, and your responsibility is greater. They have no revelation from God, but you do have a revelation from God. Now, he mentions the three national sins. I think that's just uh, interesting from a devotional perspective. Hey, Israel, go over here. Go here, right? If I, if I read it from this translation that I have here in front of me, cross over to Kalna and see. Go from there to Great Hamath. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory larger than yours? Hey, are you better than them? Are you better? Now, he's asking this maybe from a national perspective. Are you better than them? But I think sometimes as Christians, we have to, we, we think that we're better than the world. We think that we're better. But are we really better? Look at the sins of the church. Look at our lives. Oh, we may commit different kinds of sins. We're better at dressing it up, covering it up. We're definitely better at, at running to our closet and picking which robe of self-righteousness we're going to wear today. We're better at wearing our fig leaves. We're better at doing all of these kinds of, we're better at cleaning up the outside of the cup. We're better at cleaning up the outside of the tomb, but we are not better. We are just redeemed and saved and covered in the imputed righteousness. We so want to flaunt our self-righteous, our, our fraudulent righteous, instead of letting people understand that we're saved by an imputed righteousness. We almost want to convince people, no, we're better than the world. That's how we know we're saved. We almost want to point to our, our practical righteousness as proof of salvation instead of our having the imputed righteousness accredited to our account. But so are you better? I just think that that's a, a powerful idea. Are you better than these? Are you better? Are you better? Was the church of Corinth better than the, the city of Corinth? Obviously not. I mean, I think mean, over and over and over again. Throughout church history. But now he's going to point out the three national sins. I'm going to back that up a little bit because he mentioned that in, in the last and, and his study of five, the three national sins of Israel. If I was to stop right here, I'm going to back this up. I'm going to back it up just slightly. All right. I would ask you, if you can name, what were the three national sins of Israel? If, if I if I was doing this for Bible Institute or doing this in a, a seminary classroom, I'd stop right here. Okay, what are the three national sins of Israel? Stop. And and then I, I may, like, because I, I would do this kind of stuff as a teacher. All right, you're released from class today. Come back tomorrow. I want you to identify the three national sins of Israel, and I want you to tell me the significance of each one. Okay, so go. But um, I'm not going to do that. For, I want to stop right now. If we had more time, I would just stop this episode right here and just say, I want you to work on the three sins, the national sins of Israel. But what were the three national sins of Israel? Let's see if we can have them. Obviously, he believes they're listed in Amos chapter 6. What do you think they were? Let's find out what they were. Here we go. Mentions the three national sins of that nation and these are the three sins that brought the northern kingdom down. It brought the southern kingdom down. It brought Babylon down. It brought Egypt down. It brought Greece down. It brought Rome down. And it has brought many great nations down. It's the reason France is a second-rate nation today. It's the reason that Great Britain has become a second-rate nation one time, why the sun never set on the British Empire, but it looks like the British Empire is setting now. So that these three sins are national sins, and they're sins that God will judge nations relative to. Now, number one is in verse 4. I probably should read verse 3. Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seed of violence to come near. In other words, they say, yes, a day is coming, but it's not near. We don't need to worry about it. Remember, that was the thing that Hezekiah said to Isaiah when he told him judgment was coming on the southern kingdom, and they'd be carried into captivity. And Hezekiah says, will it be in my day? And Isaiah said, no, it won't be in your day. And even Hezekiah, who was a great king, he said, well, then that's all right. 
a great many of us have passed on to our grandchildren a debt and a nation that is in trouble today. I used to worry about my daughter and the day she would live in. Well, I don't worry too much about that now, but I do worry about that little grandson and the world that he's moving into and the world that he'll be living in. The evil day is coming. Now, what are the three sins that destroy a nation? Number one, verse four, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. Now, sex and gluttony are the two sins that are mentioned here and there sins of the flesh. And so I have them labeled gluttony in my notes. I would like to change that to the sins of the flesh, gluttony and sex. Those are the two things that are mentioned here. Now, that lie upon beds of ivory. Now, Samaria, Ahab and Jezebel had built there an ivory palace. That has been thoroughly excavated, and they have found many very fine, delicate vessels that were in the rubble and the ruins of that great palace there. And it represented the life of the upper class in that day. They lie upon beds of ivory. They all had king-sized beds, and they were taking it easy. And it suggests sex, by the way. Stretch themselves. That's interesting. It suggests sex? Amos chapter 6. If I said Isaiah at any point, I apologize. Amos chapter 6, verse 4. That that suggests sex. All right, I'm looking here because that... Let's do a little... I'm going to pull up commentaries. I, I'm not, I, man, I'm, I'm struggling with this one a little bit here. Let's see if other commentaries pick up on this. Um, because I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, okay. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Okay. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little perplexed here. I'm a little baffled here where this supposedly comes from because I'm not, I'm not seeing this at all. Like I don't, I don't get this. Give me one second. I got to get these commentaries to pull up really quick. I don't know where. um, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this one's like, whoa. I was like all excited. Oh, at the three national sins. And then all of a sudden he's like sex. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, where, where are you getting that idea from? Now, remember, I think in chapter four, he, he found the sin of homosexuality. And I'm like, where that definitely wasn't there. He, he inserted that. So I don't know where this comes from. So, uh, just give me a second here. I'm waiting for this. Uh, there we go. Taking forever to connect. Okay. Here we go. There we go. All right. Um, I'm looking, I'm looking at all the different, uh, translations here. And I'm not, I'm not seeing anything in a translation that would help me. Um, selfish, selfish luxury and debauchery. Now this one says debauchery. Okay. So maybe that's where it's uh, uh, coming from. All right. I'm going to go parallel commentaries. Uh, See here, I'm not finding anything there. They don't really describe what the debauchery supposedly is. Uh, Matthew Henry, those who looked upon as doing well for themselves, who do well for their bodies, but we are here told that their what their ease is and what their woe is. Here is the description of pride, security, and sensuality. Um. Okay, I'm looking. I, that one doesn't mention anything. Um, it, I don't see this. I mean, I, I see some kind of hinting at it. 
It says, stretch themselves upon their couches. This somewhat explains the former. They did extremely indulge their pride, luxury, and on beds of couches laid themselves to feast when God called them to mourn and weep. Um, yeah, it's indulging themselves, ease, slothfulness. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get the sex part. Because remember how it starts in chapter 6, verse 1? Woe to them that are at ease. And then they lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves out upon their couches and eat the lambs of the flock and and calves out of the midst of the stall. This is just, you could call it gluttony. You could call it complacency. You could call it, I don't know. uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I I don't. Whoa. I'm having a hard time with the sex part. I mean, typically when the Bible refers to sexual sins, you think that you think if Amos, Amos has been very, very blunt, right? Why would all of a sudden he just, okay, I'm not going to be so blunt about what I'm referring to here. He's like the stretching out on couches, somehow that's sexual in nature. This is just that they are, you could say they are greedy, they're gluttonous, they're lazy, they're slothful. This, this, they're, they're they're rich. They're wealthy. I I I don't know. I I. All right. Let's see where else he goes with this. That that's not. Uh, I I would. I, I don't know. I don't know what you would call this. Let's continue. Calves upon their couches. That was the thing that they were engaged in. It is a thing that has been said in our day. Someone has answered the woman's lib movement by saying the woman's place is in the kitchen and in the bedroom. May I say to you, it's an awful thing to say because I totally disagree with that. But it's the color and complexion of our nation today. Now, I could give you quotation here after quotation that I have, but I'm not going to do that today. I call attention to one. I took out a Life magazine, and it gave a picture of Washington, the capital. And this was many years ago under a minute. Again, once again, he takes this and applies it to the nation instead of applying it to God's people. Now, if you want to apply this to God's people, then God's people are just laying around. The church has become lazy. The church has become wealthy. The church has become gluttonous and slothful and apathetic and just laying around. On It's got all of its material blessings. It's rich. It's wealthy. But it's lazy and it's just laying around feeding itself. If you want to apply it to the church, then that's, that to me makes sense because this is a condemnation against the people of God, the people of Israel who's in a covenant relationship with God. He, he wants to immediately go after Washington or Hollywood or, or liberals. And I, I, oh, I don't know why preachers do this. This is to Israel. Apply it to us. Okay, so let's see. He's, Time Magazine, let's, Washington. Let's see what he's going to say. Illustration in the early 60s. And it says, talking about the social life, it's when they get together and All they talk about is who is going with whose wife and who is being unfaithful to his wife and drinking. And that was amazing to find that in Life magazine of that day. And that was many years ago. Well, you wonder what it is today. And it hasn't any reference to any particular party. It just means the whole kit and caboodle there. I don't know. I don't know if this is a shock to Christians. I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I feel foolish even saying this, but I, I have to say it because sometimes I think Christians tend to forget this. Human beings. Everybody may want to sit down. You may want to sit down, and if you have children around, you may want to hit pause. But everyone may want to sit down here because I know some of you Christian adults don't realize this yet. Um, Human beings are sexual beings. (laughs) Human beings are sexual creatures. They have sex. They desire sex. They think about sex. And they want sex. So 
this this uh, that's why sexual sin has been in the Bible from the very beginning. It's there. That's just the way it is. So, but I, I don't know why we're placing sex in this particular text where I don't see it. Like, is it is like he placed homosexual? What's the deal with just? We don't need to look for sexual sin. It will it will it will speak of it when it's there. But it's always like, can you believe that people in Washington are talking about who's sleeping with whom? And, and oh, no, it's, it's been going on forever before there was an America. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis. You have everything that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you go back to Genesis, we end up, well, go think of all the sexual sin that you find just in Genesis. I mean, come on. It, it's, it's always been there. It always will be there because that's human beings. Or, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I had to. What I don't why 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 okay. All right. Let's let's continue on and see if he'll actually deal with the actual text. Here, here we go. Uh given over to this type of thing. I think more attention is probably paid in Washington to sex than to any of the problems that you and I have today. When these lawmakers get on television, they become very serious. But their social life, now that's not true of all of them, of course, but the social life in Washington must be very corrupt today. Now, no nation has ever been able to survive that type of thing. Rome, probably the greatest of all nations, and the one nation that will come back. It will come back in the last days. Antichrist will put it back. But why did it fall apart? No enemy outside destroyed Rome. It was like Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's men, all the king's horses can't put it back together again. But why did it fall? Well, Gibbon in his decline and fall of the Roman Empire mentions this as being the destruction of the family was one of the important things. When immorality came in, then the nation began to go down. That's number one. Now, number two is, verse 5, "...that chant to the sound of the harp, and invent to themselves instruments of music, like David." Now, they came up with a lot of new tunes. All right, so he focuses on sex. I mean, he wants to say sins of the flesh. He wants to say sin and gluttony, but all he focused on there was sex. So supposedly the national sin of Israel was sex. Wouldn't the national sin of Israel be idolatry? Wouldn't that a major issue? Like, okay, I'm, try, I'm trying my best to follow along. Okay, now I'm worried about what he's going to do with the next one. I am worried about what he's going to do with the next one. I am worried, 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 because when it comes to Christians and music, okay, just don't even get me started here, okay? But so they improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. Okay, let's let's see what they're going to do with this. Let's see what they're going to do with this. I am going to pull up a number of other commentaries to see what they do with this. All right, here we go. In that day, you may think hard rock music and rock and roll is something new and jazz my, they had it back in that day. And music, the character of music, can destroy a nation. And pray- <sighs> What is happening today? Why? Why is everything I'm listening to going, going? So now music can destroy a nation. Music can destroy a nation. All right, so now they basically created rock and roll and jazz because jazz is the instrument of the devil, I guess. Oh, boy. Good thing that he recorded this way before the invention of, you know, before rap became a big thing. All right, so let's just see what the other commentaries have to say here. All right, uh, let's see here. What do they have here? Let's look here. They invented themselves instruments of music. Uh, the same pains which David employed on music to the honor of God, they employed on their light 
uh, unmeaningful music and as if they were and as earnest enough justified their inventions by the example of David. Okay, I think what we're getting here, I know jazz, yeah, jazz is bad. Okay, someone someone just just laughed out loud. Jazz, I mean that's that syncopated beat. I mean right there that will that will send you to the 18th level of hell. You know, okay, that syncopated beat of jazz. It's a, that improvisation within jazz doesn't follow all those the typical rule. I mean, okay, we never, we're not going to get into music theory here, but okay. He's looking at it and like some of the, and, 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 and to be fair, some of the commentaries go with the same concept. Here's what they were doing. David created music for God, but these in, individuals were creating and inventing music for themselves. And they were using David as they, well, David did music now, but they were making music for themselves. I think possibly, could we just not look at this, that this entire section is like, these people are so wealthy. So it is. They're not worried about spiritual things. They're just laying around on their nice big couches, eating their, you know, four course meal, listening to music, making music. This is about self-indulgence. This is about forsaking the things of God, not worrying about hearing the word of God, not worried about coming judgment. They're just laying around distracted by the materialistic wealth that they have. And that, that to me seems to be the focus. This is not like they made bad music. It just means that they have now their focus is on self, is on indulgence, is on entertainment. It's not on the things of God. Going from the couch to the food to the music. That, that's, they're, they're just in a, 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 a they're at ease, which is how the, the chapter begins. Um, let's see what else they have here. See, they defend their luxurious passion for music by his example, forgetting that he pursued the study when at peace and free from danger and that for the praise of God, but they were pursuing their own self-gratification when God is angry and ruin is imminent. So I think the, I think to me, the idea here is more like they're just, they're not ignoring the warnings from God while they're laying around on their couch, eating and listening to music that, that, that you could say that this is a, a placing luxury, wealth, food, and music before the word of God. And I'll be more than happy to confess my own sin in this area. I've never placed sleep, you know, laying around on a couch, sleeping, and food before God. But yes, I will acknowledge my struggle with music um, because I love music and I will not even at any minute try to pretend otherwise. So I, I, I could see that. Now I've tried to balance it out. But I can acknowledge that. But they're going to turn this into, they were making bad music. They were making bad music. Okay. All right. So according to him, the, the national sins of Israel are sex and rock and roll and jazz. Okay. Right. I'm a little bit of making a little bit of fun of it, but that's kind of basically the direction he's going here. Friends, as far as I'm concerned. We've arrived there. Now, I know I sound like a square. Now, I'll get many letters on this that what a backward fella I am. Well, I am. And somebody's going to say, you don't know anything about music. I sure don't. I know whether I like it or whether I don't like it. And a lot of it I don't like today. And I just don't listen to it. The chant of the sound of the harp. In other words, the music no longer was used as it was in David's day. And David was a genius. And I, I, so much when I hear Christians talk about me, oh man, just me. I, I have a, I have a rule in my life. Don't talk to Christians about music. Don't talk to Christians about music. Just because uh, it never ends well. It never ends well. But let me just say this. Sometimes when I hear older Christians talk about music, I don't hear Christianity or Bible. What I hear is the music today. I don't know what's wrong with the music today. It's like, you know, the music back in my day. And it, it's more of a generational thing. You know, there, there's been studies that basically by the time I think 24, 25, it's almost like the brain shuts down. And as you get older, you will not accept new music. You only will hold on to the music of your teenage years where it typically the music corresponds with the, the hormones and the emotions in your body and you kind of get locked in. And that's, and that's why older people will only want to listen to the music. Like if they'll, if their teenage years were the seventies, they want to listen to the music of the seventies. If their teenage years were the eighties, they want to listen to the music of the eighties. It's a, it's a mental thing. 
It's like some mental, like you get 24, 25, and all of a sudden the brain shuts down. And like, oh, this new music today, it's so not good. And it's like, uh, that. there's nothing more than irritates me more. Oh, you don't even know how much that irritates me to no end because I, that makes absolutely no. If you're a music fan, you're a music fan. You're always a music fan, right? And so I, I don't get that, but old people do it all the time all the time. I will I would I I will always try to make sure my li- music listening is 90% new and then I will obviously be, just because I love music will n- at def- different times pull out something old just because I always want to appreciate what I have listening to, what I am listening to, what I will be listening to. But uh some sometimes but then we 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 find a way to spiritually justify our like or dislike of something, right? Because we don't like it, then we we'll find a spiritual justification for saying, "See, that garbage that's sinful and that's wrong you want to go back and like do you want to go back to the movies you like do you want to go back to the books you like do you want to go back to the music you liked because but it but we we do that it's finding spiritual justification to me this is all describing that the people are just at ease and are laying around in luxury they have the the luxury to invent new music because they're not worried about anything they have they're a time of peace and luxury but judgment is coming and they don't see it they have become distracted by all of their blessings. But his music was to praise and glorify God. But now they had also geniuses in their day. But they were not writing music to praise God. And for the glory of God, it was, of course, that which would take people away from God and the worship of God. And I also love the arbitrary standard that Christians impose upon me. Music must be for the glory and praise of God. But my television shows don't have to be. My sporting event don't have to be. I've, I've watched adults do this all the time to the teenager. Hey, you can't listen to that music. It's not to the glory and honor of God. Now, shh, be quiet. My favorite TV show is coming on. And you're like, what? What? I'll never forget when, because I mean, I became a, a Christian as a teenager. And I remember basically almost instantaneously, I was told I had to burn all of my albums, get rid of all of my music because it was all satanic. It was all demonic and it was all wrong, all wrong, all wrong, all wrong, all wrong. And I, I could only listen to Christian music or, and, and, and but then when I would go to their houses, I, would, I realized really quick, wait a minute. I couldn't listen to any secular music, but these people were watching secular television shows. These people were watching secular movies where they're screaming at the kids not to listen to secular music. And I'm like, wait a minute. If I can't listen to secular music, you can't watch any secular TV programs. If I can't listen to secular music, you can't read any secular novels. If I can't listen to secular music, why can you watch football? Why can you watch baseball? What kind of garbage is that? <sighs> See, This, this can't this can't be happening. This just can't be happening. It cannot be happening. That that I, I don't get Christianity's issue. I, all right, let's just continue. Now we come to the third in verse six. That drink wine in bowls, not just in little glasses, but in bowls. They were really alcoholics that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. See, he's taking everything they're doing and then pushing it to a sinful level. They're lazy. They're gluttonous. They're, I mean, the, well, he's saying they're, they're committing um, sexual sins. They're creating wrong kind of music and they're alcoholics. When I'm getting more the impression, again, to me, the interpretive key here is woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Chapter six, verse one. That's the interpretive key. How do I interpret their actions? It shows them at ease. They're just laid back. They're laying on their couch. They're eating. They're just, they're making able to, to listen to music and make music. They don't care about the things of God. They're not worried about the things of God. They're not worried about the judgment that is coming. And what else are they doing? They're drinking wine in bowls because they have an excess. They have so much. They can't put, don't have to put it in a small glass. They can put it in a bowl. They can, they, they have a never ending supply of wine and anoint themselves with, uh, with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved with the affliction of Joseph. 
In other words, they don't care about suffering. They don't care. They're not worried about the judgment of God. This is just showing that they are at ease. This is, he's taking each one and going, oh, they're doing something horrible. They're doing, the problem is they have become distracted and focused on this and the things of God. That's the issue. Okay, let's continue. Now, they drink wine in bowls and they anoint themselves. You see, in that day, why there was a great deal of tension spent on the matter of getting the right kind of ointment for your underarms. And I don't mind mentioning it because they mention it on TV all the time now. And in that day, it was pretty important that you use the right kind of spray and the right kind of deodorant, but it's drunkenness that was destroying the nation. Now, these were the three sins. And now, I'm not going over it. I went over it some time ago. That drunkenness is the thing that is destroying our nation today as well as these other sins. And we're not getting by with it. And today, it's becoming an alarming sort of thing. I have a statement here that there are nine million alcoholics in the country and that there are 36 million people whose lives are directly affected by the alcoholic. Now, listen, I hate alcohol maybe more than any human being on the face of the planet. I despise it. I loathe it. And I think it has destroyed way too many lives. But you don't just the, – the issue – the issue here is this is showing them at ease. It's showing that they just have an abundance, that they, that's the focus point. That's the focal point here. That's what they're doing. And some think the bowls here, I'm going to try to find it. I, I'm almost positive that this is true, or at least some, okay. Uh, they drink uh, wine and bowls, uh, drink, literally sprinkling vessels of wine. The word is elsewhere used only for the bowls out of which the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. Probably Amos was referring to the first offering of the princes in the wilderness with whom they had already tactically consecrated these princes. Uh, they had shown zeal for God in offering the massive bowls for the service of the tabernacle. The lag zeal had these princes up for the service of their own God. So it sounds like that possibly these bowls were used for blood sacrifice, and now they're just using them for wine. In other words, they were, they're just so, they got all this material wealth, they're laying back, and they're forgetting God. They don't care about God. They're just, they're just sitting around, laying on couches, eating, listening to music, and drinking wine. It, this is about excess and 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 uh, and distraction and and uh, and and basically placing these things before God. That seems to be the issue. He's trying to go. Oh, they're laying on couches. They're stretch themselves out. Oh, that's code for sex. Stretch themselves out. That's a code for sex. Okay. Oh, music. Oh, oh, rock and roll. Rock and roll. That's what it is. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, a bowl. A bowl. Oh, oh, that that means they're alcoholics. No. I, that's what is going. Someone says this is a helpful discussion. I hope it's a helpful discussion because I'm, I'm, I, I quit. I quit. I don't understand. Um, but that's always the danger. Like I, I can't stand alcohol just because I come to a passage that says alcohol doesn't mean I have to launch into a diatribe and a, and a tirade and a rant against alcohol. It means, no, what, 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 what's, what's the alcohol being mentioned here for? So he's turned three national sins that he's taking from Amos 6 that I don't think Amos 6 is a, breaking them down the way he's breaking them down. It's it's describing all of them come together. Look, the sin is, hey, you're at ease in Zion. These are examples of that problem. That's the issue. That's the hermeneutical key. That's the interpretive key. I got that out of... And Lander's column a few years ago, that is the picture of this country today. And other statistics that 50% of these accidents where people are killed, and there are more people being killed in automobile accidents in this country than were ever killed in Vietnam, but nobody is protesting the fact that 50% of them are caused by alcohol. And you find nothing said about that. And I was amazed that a few years ago that one of the distilleries 
had an advertisement about the young people drinking, and they said they were concerned about it. It says teenager... Now, I'm reading from an advertisement of a distiller. Teenagers, especially in a group, are often tempted to do things they might not do on their own, like taking a drink when they know they shouldn't. We're sure you're concerned about this problem. Imagine a liquor maker telling me and you that they think we are concerned because they are. Well, why don't you quit making this stuff? But you won't have to worry much about it if you've shown your youngster over the years that your ideas about drinking are healthy and mature. Well, now, what are healthy and mature ideas? It's just bizarre. This is supposed to be about Amos. And he keeps applying it to the world, to the world, to the world, to the world, to the world. And he's completely destroying uh, <laughs> the actual meaning of the text. The sin is there at ease in Zion. All of this is symptoms of that problem. How is the church at ease? Are we laying back on our, you know, beds of ivory couches and, and stretching ourselves out and eating? And just, well, yeah, that's the church. We, we become apathetic and complacent and at ease with our material wealth and all that we have and all of the blessings that we have. This is a common issue in scripture, right? Just remember, remember the pattern. You see it in judges. You see it all over the place. When God's people find themselves at a time of peace, a time of ease with great blessing, materialistic wealth, what happens? They become complacent and they become apathetic, spiritually speaking. And then slowly but surely, they slide off into idolatry. Then after idolatry, God warns them. God, God brings judgment upon them. This begins... They, they lose some of those wonderful blessings. They go through a hard, difficult time. They cry out to God for repentance. They are restored and they go back to a time of blessing and material wealth. And then guess what happens? They slide into apathy, then into idolatry. Then there's judgment and there's restoration. Then there's a time of blessing. And it's a cycle. It continues over and 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 over again. Book of Judges demonstrate that's constantly. is about drinking. It's drinking, isn't it? That is, that's what they have in mind. They're surely not running an advertisement on prohibition. And I'd like to conclude by reading this poem. It's nobody's business is the name. It's nobody's business what I drink. I care not what my neighbors think or how many laws they choose to pass. I'll tell the world I'll have my glass. Here's one man's freedom cannot be curbed. My right to drink is undisturbed. So he drank in spite of law or man, then got into his old tin can, stepped on the gas and let it go, down the highway to and fro. He took the curves at fifty miles with bleary eyes and a drunken smile. Not long till a car he tried to pass, then a crash, a scream, and breaking glass. The other car was upside down, about two miles from the nearest town. The man was clear, but his wife was caught, and he needed the help of that drunken sot who sat in a maudlin drunken daze and heard the scream and saw the blaze, but too far gone to save a life by helping the car from off the wife. The car was burned, and a mother died, while a husband wept and a baby cried, and a drunk sat by, and still some think it's nobody's business what they drink. Now make sure you understand, I hate alcohol. I hate it. So my, we're not disagreeing about alcohol. What we're disagreeing with is I don't think this text is screaming about alcohol. It's screaming about they have forgotten God, possibly drinking the wine and what's supposed to be used in bowls of sacrifice, where the blood is supposed to be, that this is, they're just an abandoning God for their luxury, for their ease, for their material wealth, for their, they become apathetic. They've become gluttonous. They have become idolaters in placing other things before God. And that, the, the application would not be to the world, it would be to the church, where, we, we, where the church becomes lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, we may have to stop here. Let's see. I think he's going to move to verse 7. If he does, we'll stop. I say to you, this is what destroys nations, not just accidents on the highway. 
These are the three great sins that have brought great nations down. And I just don't think we're the exception to the rule as a nation. It's enough to break any person's heart when you see what's happening in this great nation of ours today. And we try to explain it away by saying that we now are civilized. We today have a new morality. We have grown up. We've got rid of the old Puritan notions. And by the way, the Puritans and the pilgrims founded a great nation. Are we the sophisticated and suave folk? Are we going to keep it that way or are we losing it today? May I say that this message of Amos was fulfilled in his day. The northern kingdom went into captivity. It was destroyed. These are the sins that brought it down. Now, friends, in conclusion, the three great sins that undermine every great nation of the world and has led to the downfall of all the great powers of the past. And we saw them in verses 4, 5, and 6. In verse 4, it was gluttony and sex. In verse 5, it was heathen music. And in verse 6, it was drunkenness. And we dealt with those three, and we're not going into that again today, other than it's the same old story. Wine, women, and song. That's what a great many people think life is. But actually, that is not what life's all about. That's what death is all about. And this is the philosophy that says, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Or the philosophy says, pick the daisies while you can. The day's coming when you won't be able to pick them. In other words, satisfy self. But if a man goes down the line or a nation, he'll find out that this does not lead to a pot of gold, but it's a dead-end street with the emphasis upon dead. It's led to the death of individuals and nations. And it reveals something quite interesting, that the heart is one of the most remarkable organs that God has put in the human body. It's a very small organ, by the way. But, you know, you can put the world in it, and when you do, you can't even fill the heart. Remarkable, is it not? Now, we move on here, and we begin at verse 7. He says, And that's where we'll have to stop. So, he, he, he looks at three, the three national sins as the sins that bring all nations down. The point here, these are the sins of God's people. We shouldn't be applying this to the nations. We should be applying it to God's people. He takes three sins and that I don't think the text is even articulating. That what this, this chapter is saying, God's people have become gluttonous, apathetic, complacent, distracted by these blessings, and they're ignoring the warnings from God, and they're ignoring the judgment that is coming. That's the issue here, and we can apply that to the church, but... He applied it to the world. So we're going to stop at the basically the 21-minute mark, Amos 6. All right. Wow. Don't know what else to say. I wanted to finish the whole chapter, but that that turned into a... Well, I guess it was a good hermeneutical exercise. So to me, if you say, what's the hermeneutical key for chapter 6? It's verse 1. All right, let me read it to you again. That's the hermeneutical key. I don't know why he abandoned the hermeneutical key. I have no idea, but he did. The hermeneutical key is, let me read it to you, Amos chapter 6. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. That's the hermeneutical key, especially for the first part. Now, you may think that there's a different hermeneutical, hermeneutical key for the second part, and you can let me know. But whatever your thoughts are in Amos chapter 6, what have you thought about his description of these three national sins? Whatever you think about my, how I'm looking at it versus the way he's looking at it, well, that's why we do this. You just got two very different perspectives on Amos chapter 6. 
Now you can tell me what you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I, I don't even know what else to say today. Right. It's, I, I think it's almost a conspiracy against me that, that, that I keep having to listen to things that have these absolute crazy notions about heathen music brings down a nation. It's just okay. All right. All right. We'll stop right there. Newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. Keep working on the book of Amos. And we'll, I don't, we maybe we'll get to this tonight. I don't know. I got other things I've got planned to do tonight. So we will see. Um, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. I, I was hoping that would be a, more of an encouragement for me to bring me out of my depression, discouragement, and want to quit. I think that only confirmed that I probably should. But okay, I'll stop there. Thanks for listening. God bless.